You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Okay, Zach and Kathleen are going to read to us from Revelation 2. Wahyu pasal 2 ayat 12 sampai 17. Kepada malaikat jemaah di Pergamos, tuliskanlah demikian. Inilah yang dikatakan oleh dia yang berpedang tajam bermata dua. Aku tahu di mana kediamanmu, yaitu di tempat iblis bertakta. Engkau telah berpegang pada namaku dan tidak menyangkal imanmu kepadaku. Bahkan ketika Antipas dibunuh di tengah-tengah kamu di tempat kediaman iblis, Antipas adalah saksiku yang setia. Tetapi aku mempunyai beberapa keberatan terhadap engkau. Di antaramu ada beberapa orang yang menganut ajaran Bileam yang memberi nasihat kepada Balak untuk menyesatkan orang Israel supaya mereka makan persembahan berhala dan berbuat zina. Demikian juga ada padamu orang-orang yang berpegang kepada ajaran pengikut Nikolaus. Sebab itu bertobatlah. Jika tidak demikian, aku akan segera datang kepadamu dan aku akan memerangi mereka dengan pedang yang di mulutku ini. Siapa bertelinya, Hendaklah ia mendengarkan apa yang dikatakan roh kepada jemaat-jemaat. Barang siapa menang, kepadanya akan kuberikan dari mana yang tersembunyi, dan aku akan mengaruniakan kepadanya batu putih, yang di atasnya tertulis nama baru, yang tidak diketahui oleh siapapun, selain oleh yang menerimanya. Church family, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Roy. So good to have you here with us. And I told the 9 a.m. I couldn't have translated that text any better myself. So just grateful. You did a good job. Um, church family, good to see you this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here at Northway. And grateful you're with us. I'd love to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you somewhere. That's our gift to you. You can have that. Uh, we are in a series called Letters to the Church. We're looking at the seven letters of the churches in Revelation that Jesus wrote to. And uh, in general, what we're looking at in this series is what does it look like for a church, a local church like ours, to be marked by faithfulness in a day of compromise? And we've looked at two churches so far. We've seen what faithfulness in the area of love looks like, our love for the Lord Jesus Christ through the church in Ephesus. We've seen what faithfulness looks like in the area of suffering. So we looked last week at the church at Smyrna. This week, we're going to travel just a little further north on the western Aegean Sea coast of modern-day Turkey, ancient first century, uh, first century uh, Asia Minor, to the city of Pergamum. And we're going to look at what faithfulness looks like in the area of worship. Worship. And I want you to imagine for just a moment... You're the church in Pergamum. First century, Rome is ruling. You're a Christian who's gathered together, probably in a small home church in the city of Pergamum. You finally hear, you hear that the scroll's coming. It's the words of Jesus. It's already gone to Ephesus. It's gone to Smyrna. And now it's being delivered by a courier to you here in Pergamum. And you hear these words to the angel of the church at Pergamum. Write. He who has the words, his words that carries with it a sharp double-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Man, how does that hit you? Jesus just comes out and goes, hey, church at Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. How would you and I interpret that? Now, I can tell you, every reader who received this letter living in Pergamum knew exactly what Jesus was saying when this came to them. Because when you understand what's going on in Pergamum, Pergamum, this this major fortified city, it's actually two cities in Pergamum. There is a lower city and there is an upper city. Down the lower valley floor is a a metropolis that's down there, but also ascending 1,300 feet up is another high city. That's what Acropolis means, high city that's up on top of this mountain where there are dozens and dozens and dozens of structures. And what we're going to find out aren't just structures, they are altars, they are temples, and they are everywhere. And Jesus writes to this church, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Now, before we dive into this letter, what I want to do for us here this morning in giving us a little background on the city of Pergamum is I want to present to you six candidates for what Satan's throne could be that Jesus is referencing. And I want to walk through these briefly here that every citizen in Pergamum would be familiar with, every Christian living in this city would be familiar with. And I want to ask you at the very end, what do you think is Satan's throne? Which one of these candidates? And there could be more, but I think these are the six most prominent candidates that are here before us today. So I want to start with candidate number one this morning, and that is located on the top of the Acropolis, the altar of Zeus. Now, this is not a temple. It is an altar, and it is massive. In fact, it is the largest altar that has ever been found on earth. At the very top of this Acropolis, 117 feet wide, 110 feet long, 40 feet tall. The imagery that goes all around this altar, uh, around the frieze is the story that's going around the altar, is depicting the mythological battle between the gods and the titans. And because this is an altar of Zeus, what this story is telling you and telling the whole city is telling you that Zeus is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. In fact, that was Zeus's title. The king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He's the supreme ruler over all creation. Everything that is has come from him. He is the one who rules and reigns. You have your very existence because of Zeus. And because he is the head of all gods, he would have been worshipped at this altar 24-7, 365. There is incense going up from the sacrifices of the citizens who make their way up to the top of the Acropolis to offer unto Zeus the supreme allegiance, the supreme worship of Zeus. If you're a Christian living in the city, imagine that tension. Everybody's going up there, and you're expected to go up there too and ascribe worth to Zeus as the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. And that flies in your face because you have already read John's words and Paul's words and many of the letters that have circulated through this area. You've heard from Deuteronomy chapter 10, Psalm 136, 1 Timothy chapter 6, that Jesus is the king of kings. 
Jesus is the Lord of all lords. He is the the supreme ruler of all creation. In fact, Paul wrote to the Colossians just southwest of where you live in Pergamum, telling that community that all of creation has come into existence through Jesus and for Jesus. He is the only one worthy of your allegiance. He is the only one worthy of your worship. You shall bow the knee to nobody because only Jesus is the true God. What do you do? as a Christian living in this community, when you are the only one not making that trek up to offer a sacrifice to Zeus. Maybe this is Satan's throne that Jesus is referring to. I'll give you a second candidate though. Also located on this Acropolis is the sanctuary of Athena. Now this is the oldest temple on the Acropolis. It's one of the very first ones ever built. And Athena was the patron god goddess of this city. In fact, Athena is known as the goddess of war and wisdom. Because she's the goddess of wisdom, it's no wonder why in every city where there's a temple to Athena, it's connected to the library that was in that city. Library with all the parchments and all the books, by the way, where they learned book binding was invented in Pergamum. And in this library that is adjoining to the temple of Athena, it's the second largest library in the world at the time, only behind Alexandria. And in fact, it's so significant that Mark Antony is going to go plunder this library, take all the parchments down to Alexandria and store them there and double that size until that library burns down and loses it all. But this is where wisdom is contained with Athena. But when it comes to Athena's wisdom, and by the way, we know how prominent she was in the city because found in the archaeological excavations was a 10-foot statue of Athena that stood in front of her temple. You couldn't help but see her from everywhere. And when it came to Athena's wisdom, she's not just dispensing knowledge for you to know. What Athena is doing is she is giving you the wisdom on how you should live life. And so you need guidance. You need direction. You're at a crossroads in your life. You're not sure which way to go. Athena will let you know. But you've got to go to her temple and you've got to make an offering, a sacrifice to worship her as the goddess of wisdom, and then she will dispense that wisdom to you. But here's the deal. If you don't, not only will you not receive that blessing from her, you might actually incite the cursing upon the city itself, as it will be with every one of these temples. And so for a Christian to not make their way to the temple, you might be in jeopardy of bringing cursing upon the city for your worship of Jesus. And all of this, again, flies in the face. The goddess of wisdom. By the way, Athena's nickname, do you know what this is? I'm not making this up. This is her inscribed nickname on the statues. She is the way, the truth, and the life. Sound familiar? You've already heard John's words, which circulated through your community a few years before in John chapter 14, when he quotes Jesus, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. And also was written to the Corinthians just across the sea in Corinth that Jesus himself in 1 Corinthians 1, he is the wisdom of God on display. You need direction, you need wisdom, you don't run to Athena, you run to Jesus. You don't bend the knee to Athena. So what do you do? Can you feel the tension as a Christian? Maybe this is the throne of Satan. I'll give you a third option. On this Acropolis was also two temples to Caesar. 
One of the temples, the one that's still standing today, at least in some form, is the temple built to the emperor Trajan. It was built just after the writing of Revelation. It's located at the highest point of the Acropolis. In fact, they had to build a massive platform uh, extending over the mountain just to hold this temple. That's how prominent Caesar worship was there. But we know that there was actually another temple to a Caesar built before this, the one that would have been standing in the day that this was written. It was the temple to the Caesar Augustus, the very first Caesar. And this one they have not found in the ruins yet, but they know it existed because it was minted on all the coins, the images of it. But the idea is that Pergamum is fiercely loyal to Rome. They don't have just one, they have two neo-choruses, two temples built to Rome and to the Caesars. And what you need to understand about the Caesars that became um, important in the context of Pergamum is Pergamum was one of the first Roman provinces to receive the edict of Us Gladi. Us Gladi is a Latin term that simply means power of the sword. Prior, in the earliest days of Rome's inception, the power of the sword, the power to judge, the power for capital punishment came from the emperor. But as the Roman territory expanded, there's no way the emperor could govern all that. So his governors would receive Usgladi. One of the famous governors you're aware of is Pilate. The only reason Pilate could allow Jesus to be crucified is because just a few years before that, Pilate was given Usgladi. But Pergamum was one of the first cities where it came to. And Pergamum was famous for putting Christians to death with the power of the sword. By the way, the symbol for the power of the sword was a zypho. It was a sword, a sharp double-edged sword about this big that gave the authority for either the emperor or the governors to judge. And it was there in Pergamum where some of the first gladiator games were ever fought in the Roman Empire and conducted some of the first capital punishments of Christians. And Augustus, as he was worshipped there, Augustus, it was inscribed of Augustus. Remember, every Roman emperor is viewed as a deified God, but it was said of Caesar Augustus, the very first Caesar, that he was the divine son of God. He was fully human and he was fully God. And he was the one who came with a gospel of peace. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was Caesar Augustus was going to bring peace upon the land that the people can enjoy and enjoy their prosperity. One document even notes Caesar Augustus as having the power to provide remission of sins. So what do you do as a Christian? You're expected, every Roman citizen is expected to go pay tribute to Caesar, to bend the knee, declare him as the divine son of God, the one who has the power to atone and bring peace. And if you are unwilling to do that, not only are you held in jeopardy, you might actually be excommunicated. You might be put to death by Usgladi, but certainly you would be guilty of inciting the cursing of the gods upon Pergamum if you will not bend the knee. So you'd feel the tension. Maybe this is the throne of Satan. I'll give you another candidate. Also there on the Acropolis is the temple of Dionysus. Dionysus as, uh, as he is called in Greek mythology, it is Bacchus in Roman, as the god of wine, the god of party, the god of pleasure and entertainment, which is why almost all temples of Dionysus were connected to the local theater. 
here in Pergamum is one of the longest, steepest theaters. In fact, it is the longest, steepest theater that's ever found on planet Earth. It was right here. And right across the way from the theater was the Temple of Dionysus. See, understand something about Greek or Greco-Roman culture. The theater wasn't just a place that you came to to be entertained. It was the place where you came to push the envelope in culture. If there was something that was taboo in culture, something that you wanted to take that was abnormal in culture and you wanted to normalize it, you did it through the theater. So that as you were being entertained, whether you were aware of it or not, you're actually being re-educated. You're being indoctrinated. You're being reformed concerning that particular ideology or worldview. Does that even sound remotely familiar as a medium in our culture? Absolutely. That's Hollywood. That's the entertainment business. That's your streaming platforms. That's your, that's your uh, social media feeds. It's not just information and entertainment. It's indoctrinization. It's, it's been this way, and the 21st century America didn't come up with that. The Greeks and the Romans came up with that. They found it was the best way to reshape worldviews and minds was by entertaining you subtly in doing it. But what's interesting about Dionysus, so when you would go to the theater, before you would go to the theater, you would actually go to the temple of Dionysus. And you would make an offering to Dionysus that would bless what you were about to receive as entertainment. But one of the most prominent ways that you would worship Dionysus in Roman culture was through um, an organization called a symposium. When you and I hear symposium, we tend to think of some conference, some meeting, maybe read through a collection of essays by a number of contributors, whatever it may be. But in the Greco-Roman world, a symposium was very different. In fact, symposia, singular, symposium, plural, it means a drinking together. You would get together at some home. It would be men and women together, some of the elites, the minds. You would have a, several topics that you would discuss while you drank wine together. It was a sweet time until the wine started getting heavier towards the end of the, the drink together. And then you would cease your discussions and they would bring in the male and female servants and it would turn into all-out orgies. This was symposiums and this was an act of inciting the blessing of Dionysus upon your particular group or your particular community. Imagine the tension, knowing that if I'm going to go see the local play, if I want to see the new movie that's coming out, I've actually got to sell myself to Dionysus first to allow myself to be indoctrinated so that I can, as a result, simply be entertained. This was going on in every Roman household. What do you do if you're a Christian? This flies in the face, by the way. Because you know what's interesting? In Greek mythology, Dionysus was known as the God who was killed and then resurrected. And now you have your own story that you have embraced and heard about Jesus the Christ, whom John wrote about that circulated through your town not too long ago in John chapter 11, when Jesus confesses, I am the resurrection in the life. Paul's letters that he writes saying, do not be drunk with wine, but be sober in the spirit, that don't get caught away with drunken orgies and don't give yourself to sexual immorality. He's writing against the backdrop of symposiums and the worship of Dionysus that was all over that land. 
that Jesus' words now bear weight on and Paul's words now bear weight on to these people. What do you do if you're a Christian in this? Maybe this is Satan's throne. I'll give you another candidate. It's also the temple of Demeter that is located on the backside of this Acropolis. Demeter was the goddess of agriculture and grain. In Roman nomenclature, Demeter is known as Ceres. In fact, we get the word cereal from this god. In the Greco-Roman world, she is known as the bread of life. She is the one who is going to provide you with your daily sustenance. When you are impoverished, dependent, you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, you're not sure if the harvest is going to come in this year, you are going to make your way to the temple of Demeter. You are going to offer a pig sacrifice. You're going to take the blood of that pig and sprinkle it on the altar. That is your entrance into the temple. And only then can you pray and receive Demeter's blessing to provide for you in the days to come. a Christian, this flies in the face again of what you have heard from John who wrote and circulated through your town from John chapter 6, Jesus' own words of I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. Jesus says, I'm the bread, I'm the provider, not Demeter. What do you do as a Christian? Maybe this is the throne of Satan. Give you one more candidate. It was very prominent. This one was not on the upper Acropolis. This one was located down below. It was the temple of Asclepius. It's a massive, massive um, kind of a little fortified area down in the lower city. And Asclepius is known as the god of medicine and healing. His symbol is a snake that is coiled around a staff. It is still used as the medical logo today in our communities. What's located here, again, it's more than just a temple. It's an incredibly comprehensive medical complex. This is like the Mayo Clinic of Pergamum. And in fact, it is the second largest medical complex in the entire Roman world, only second to the one that was located in Greece. And in this complex, all the doctors that worked there were known as priests. They were priests of Asclepius because it was Asclepius who empowered, so it seemed, the doctors to do their work. Therefore, when you received healing from your treatment or you felt better, you would praise Asclepius. Whatever part of the body that got healed in you that was sick, you would actually make a statue of that part and you would offer it up as an offering, an act of worship to Asclepius. Because Asclepius was the divine healer that brought you back to health, his symbol was a snake. Because a snake is a picture of rebirth, the shedding of its skin and making new. And so because of his healing power, Asclepius was known as the great Soter, which means savior. Even to get into this medical complex to be treated and have a chance at healing, you would first have to offer up a sacrifice to Asclepius in the temple that was there. Otherwise, you were not permitted to get treatment. Again, as a Christian, 
This flies in the face of what you know to be true. John wrote in his epistle, 1 John 1.14, that Jesus was sent here to be a savior. We're told in Mark chapter 1, he is the healer who has come to bring healing upon the afflicted. Imagine the tension for just a moment, if you would. Let's say you're a parent. You've got a young infant. Your infant just developed a fever. You've seen several other families in your community get this same fever and die on the third day. Your child just got the fever. You've got the clock is on, three days. The best medical complex, one of the best in the world, is just down the road from you. You know that is the only way your child is going to get treatment. But before you can enter, you've got to bend the knee and attribute all power and all authority for healing and worship to Asclepius. And at the same time, turn your back on Jesus. What do you do? This is not ethereal. This is real tension. What do you do? Maybe this is the throne of Satan. And so these tensions are everywhere. Everything that you hold to be true about Jesus, there is a counter narrative to it just around everywhere you look, seeking to push you away from Jesus as your provider, sustainer, sovereign creator, as your healer, as your source of joy and pleasure. Every competing narrative is pushing you away from Jesus towards something lesser. Temptation is all around you. And if you will not bow the knee and worship to these gods, not only can you not participate in most things, civically, socially, medically, you can actually be executed via us gladi for not bending the knee to Caesar. What do you do? Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writes to this church. Here's his words to those facing this compromise. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Who is it that has the ultimate authority to judge and issue usglati? It's not Caesar. It's not the governor. It is Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign judge. Only he has the authority to judge. So church, fear me, not them. Fear me, O church. Bend the knee to me, not them. And then he goes on to say, I know where you live. Church, I know right where you're dwelling. I know the hardships and the temptations that are all around you because I know Satan's throne is where you live. Now, let me ask you, of those six candidates I give you, which one do you think is Satan's throne? Any guesses? Give you a hint. It's item D on your Scantron 882E. It's all the above. The whole dang city is Satan's den. His throne is everywhere. There is maybe no other place on earth in the first century outside of Athens, which by the way, this city was patterned after, that displays as many per capita explicit pagan altars and temples of worship than Pergamum. The temptation is everywhere to get you to concede your faith for other competing narratives 
concerning where judgment comes from, where salvation comes from, where provision comes from, where sustaining sustenance comes from, where joy and pleasure comes from. It's in all the competing narratives around you to get you to turn away from Jesus. And therefore, my allegiance is going to be found in where I worship and how I worship. And understand when that's true, Satan like a master manipulator. His nicknames are the deceiver. He is the adversary. So he knows how to create counterfeit idols to promise you something that cannot deliver. He knows how to do that. And he is making it very difficult for you in Pergamum to follow Jesus with all these competing narratives around you. Now, by and large, Jesus tells us that most of the church was still being faithful in this day. Praise God. You see this in verse 13. Even though you are where Satan's throne dwells, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So one example of someone who has been faithful right here in Satan's city was a man by the name of Antipas. We don't know much about him. He's described here as a faithful witness. That word witness means martyr in Greek. And by the way, the name Antipas means against everyone. So what a great name in this day. This brother lived up to his namesake. He went against the whole dang city stood in opposition to hold fast, fast to Jesus Christ, even to the point of death. He would not give away his allegiance to worship a lesser God. So not everybody's compromising here, which is a good thing, but there were some. Every church has pockets of influencers who are so enamored by the culture, they view it as their prophet's role to get the church to see it the way the world sees it, not as Jesus sees it. And this church is no exception. They've got their pockets. You see this in verse 14. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. One, there are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, the one who taught Balak how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. That is a clear reference to Numbers, chapters 25 through 31. In the Old Testament, Balaam is used as a chief example of, as a prophet of compromise. He was the one who led God's people astray, who got them in trouble because he got them to compromise on God's word. Balaam is mentioned only twice in the New Testament, and it is never favorably. He is always a false teacher. Apparently, there is a group, a sub-pocket within the church, who is following in the same pattern of Balaam, enticing the followers of Christ around them to compromise with the culture in two primary ways that's described there. Eating food sacrificed to idols and compromising in sexual immorality. Both of these two things together lets us know there were, in fact, Christians who were gathering on a Sunday like this and then going and making their offerings 
both sexually and in sacrifice to the gods of the culture around them at the same time. They were a divided people. In addition to that, Jesus says in verse 15, there are also some who've held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we've seen the Nicolaitans before. That was in the first church we looked at in Ephesus. Uh, Nicolaitans are similar to that of Balaam, but they appear to have a bit of a Gnostic bent to them. Gnostic means knowledge. They, they appear to have this, this belief that they have cornered the market on some hidden knowledge that the rest of the church didn't have. They're kind of the God told me type people who love to drop God's name over and over, which by the way is the definition of taking the Lord's name in vain. It's not putting damn at the end of God's name. It's actually saying something that God never said. And they were claiming that they had this knowledge that would be beneficial for the church. And so when you put this together, it basically would go like this. The Nicolaitan message would be this. Hey, church in Pergamum, listen, y'all know how hard it is where we live right now. Like we can't even go to the movies. We can't even go get treatment at the hospital because we have to forsake our God in order to do that. This is how hard it is. God knows that. He knows how hard it is for us to live here in this culture and so he's made it known to me that it's actually okay to go along with the culture on this one because it's going to go easier for you. And after all, God wants you to be happy more than anything else. So it's okay. So we, let's worship Jesus and we can worship these other idols too. Maybe we'll take a lesser role in our hearts, but we can do both. That's how the message of the Nicolaitan would go. And as the result, God's people began to cherry pick aspects of God to worship and aspects of the culture to worship. And they, again, were a divided people. And here's what's interesting. The name Balaam in Hebrew, you know what it means? It means devourer of the people. Do you know what the word Nicolaitan means in Greek? It's the word Nike comes from. It means conqueror. It means conqueror of the people. What is it that conquers and devours God's people more than anything else? It is compromise. To God's word. That's what will devour you and overtake you. And the irony is, this is exactly what Jesus came to do, was to conquer sin, Satan, and death and overpower it so that you could be rescued and ransomed through his shed blood on the cross, his burial in the grave three days, his rising and resurrection, and then ascending to the right hand of the Father where he reigns as the Nike, as the victor, as the conqueror. He came to conquer Satan for you. And now all of a sudden, because of some of these people, they are allowing Satan to reconquer and redevour God's people all over again through compromise in their worship. And so Jesus gives them an instruction. There's only one command in this entire letter to this church. And it's right here in verse 16. Therefore, repent. This is Jesus' words to the church. It's Jesus' words to Shea Sumlin. It's Jesus' words to you. Where you have entered into compromise and begun to offer your allegiance to the gods of this world and forsake Jesus Christ, his counsel is repent. The word repent there is the word metatoneo in Greek. It means to change one's mind about something. 
that will ultimately change the direction in which you're going. The Hebrew equivalent of this word, by the way, that's used in the Old Testament is the word shuv. It means to return. It means that you are walking a path and you got off that path, so come back to the original path. In the Bible, there's only two paths. There's God's path and there's all other paths. And so Jesus says, repent, leave Pergamum's path and come back to mine. And he says there in verse 16, if you don't do this, if you're unwilling to repent, then I'm coming to make war against you. And I will do so with the sword of my mouth. Now there's a play on words going on right there. What is it that comes out of people's mouths? It's words. In Ephesians chapter six, when talking about the armor of God, what is the sword of the spirit? Do you remember? It's the word of God. It's the only offensive weapon that is listed in Ephesians six is the sword of God's word. That word, Jesus says, is my usglati. My truth that comes out of my mouth is actually the means by which I will judge my people in accordance to whether you lived in submission to that truth or you lived in rebellion and compromise to it. Jesus' word is his usglati. It's the power of the sword. So to the ones who are unwilling to abandon their forsaken ways and turn back to God's word, that is the very source of accountability and judgment that will come. And Jesus says, though, to the ones that are willing to repent, he gives the good news there in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To the one who Nikes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, two things Jesus says is awaiting to those of us who will not forsake Jesus and follow him faithfully to the day we die. Two things he says, number one, is the bread of life himself, Jesus Christ, will provide for you and take care of every need. Now, that would have been meaningful right in that day that the church was reading this letter, but it's also prophetic of what's coming at the end. When this life is through and our suffering has finished and we have held fast to Jesus Christ as he has held fast to us, what's waiting for us is the ultimate banquet table, the ultimate provision in the marriage supper of the lamb where the item that's served, the sustenance that's served is Christ himself, the very joy of who sustains us and provides for us. And the promise, of course, to a people that were suffering in this day, I've got you. I'm going to give you this day your daily bread. Just come to me, not these lesser things. But in addition to that, what's waiting for you at the end is a white stone. Now, there's a lot of theories on what that could be, but one of the prominent things that we do know happened, and it happened in Pergamum, every major Roman city had a bema seat in the middle of the city, a judgment seat, and this is kind of the court of law. And when you had an accusation against you and you went and fought it at the bema seat, the elders of that city or the rulers of that city would hear the case. And at the end of that case, they would make a decision. If they found you guilty, they would issue a black stone with your name etched in it. 
This is your crime. This is your guilt that you will carry with you. If you were found innocent, it was a white stone. Jesus says to all those who will not deny my name, but will hold fast to the very end. Oh, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You've been clothed in my righteousness. I have a white stone that you don't even know of that is going to have a new name, not just your name, but a new name for you written in it that can never be taken out. So hold fast, church. All of this language of provision and inheritance is promised to those who will not bend the knee and worship. So church, where does this leave us as we read through this letter? I want you to imagine for a moment again that Jesus wrote this letter to us, to the angel at the church at Northway Wright, the one who has the words of the sharp two-edged sword. Northway Church, I know where you live, right here in Dallas, Texas, where Satan's throne is. How would we interpret that? The idols have changed names, there's no doubt. The structures of the temples look a little different these days. But their lock on our hearts is the same as it was in the first century. There are competing narratives all around us. Good things. The screen is filled with good things that we enjoy, that we're meant to enjoy. But a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing is what ends up getting locked into our hearts as a new God that we must have at all costs. And we must seek to make offerings to that God so that we can enter into its temple and incite its blessings on us, all at the expense of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. The idols may be different for each one of us in here. For some in Dallas, it's power that's calling out to you. It's beckoning to you, saying, I can give you life and salvation if you'll just follow me. For some of us, it's wealth, and it's calling out to us, and it's saying, I can provide for you. I can make it so that you'll never want anything again if you'll just come after me. For some, it's beauty, trying to find the fountain of youth that can give us the identity and the value and the perceived attraction and worth that we so desperately desire, and it's saying, come follow me. Give your allegiance to me. Bend the knee to me. For others, it's entertainment. I can give you the pleasure and the joy that you are so longing for in your life to give you freedom. If you can just check out of the drainage of this world for just a moment, I can give you a few hours of binge-worthy pleasure that will just choke out the cares of the world if you'll just pursue me. I think for a lot of us here in Dallas, we've talked about this before, one of our idols clearly in the city is busyness. Just love going from thing to thing to thing. Who needs a Sabbath? Who needs to rest and remember that the Lord is enthroned when I can chase so many other thrones and I can just keep going and it's calling out to us saying, I can give you purpose and meaning if you'll just follow me. All of these are counterfeit narratives. And they're competing with Jesus for not only residence in our affection and our heart and our allegiance, but it's giving a false message to the world. And a church that looks more and more like the world around us ends up offering nothing to that world at the end of the day. 
We have been called to be set apart. We have been called to believe that Jesus is better. And church, my counsel for you this week, as I read through this text and counsel myself, is nothing is going to change in the idols of our life until we get to the place that we believe that Jesus is actually better. That we believe that the truth, goodness, and beauty that our hearts are searching for are not going to be found in these lesser things. The king of kings that you're looking for, the Lord of lords that you're looking for, the sovereign creator that you're looking for, the wisdom, the forgiveness, the atonement, the provision, the sustenance, the new life, the savior, the healer. His name is Jesus Christ. And so let us take some time, maybe even this week, to do some introspection here and ask ourselves, what does repentance need to look like in our life? to turn away from these vain things that we have been pursuing that promise us life but cannot give it and turn to the true giver of life, Jesus Christ, in all areas of our life so that we might worship him. And let me tell you, the day is only gonna get harder to do this. And the irony of these idols is they don't just threaten to tempt you with compromise. They will actually seek to judge you through being ostracized because there is the deepest sense of FOMO that goes on when you start looking at the rest of the world who's all going to these places and finding seemingly happiness and joy and going, and I'm gonna be the only one that's not doing that, that begins to give the window for compromise to happen. And you gotta believe that Jesus is better. He and he alone provides you what your soul is desperately looking for. So bend the knee to him and church, let us remain faithful all the way to the end, knowing there is a name waiting for us in heaven that can never be taken away. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word of conviction for my own heart. Lord, I just confess, I I have so many things in my heart that I am seeking to run into at times because they promise instant gratification. They promise instant joy. And yet they only leave me more devastated than before. Oh God, would you help us? Oh spirit right now, search our hearts. Any area of our life where we have gone off the path, would you be so kind to bring those to mind? And through the the grace and the love that you've given through the Holy Spirit, convict us that we might return to the path that leads to true life. Would you find Northway Church faithful to the end? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.